Hello, everyone. My name is J.B. Hickson with Not By Works Ministries, proclaiming the clear, accurate, and urgent gospel message from my studio beneath the sky nestled in the tall timbers of Colorado. It is Friday, August 4th, 2023. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, so glad to have Lucas, my uh, good friend and dear brother in the Lord, back with us to continue our discussion about the parables of the kingdom. We're calling this Jesus enigmatic parables of the kingdom. Of course, if you rightly divide the Word of God and study the Word of God in its literal, historical, grammatical context, uh, they're not quite so enigmatic. They're enigmatic for a certain audience, but for believers, uh, we understand what God is trying to tell us about the coming kingdom. So can't wait to dive in uh, to that discussion again here uh, with Lucas uh, in a moment. Uh, we're rounding out the week. Uh, we've had some great guests on this week. I hope everybody caught Leo Homan yesterday. Really appreciate his perspective. Uh, he's just a, a great guy all around. Obviously, we have some disagreements on some areas of uh, theology, but uh, the topics that we talk about are unrelated to that, and he really does have his finger on the pulse of geopolitical events. And so yesterday, we talked about Russia's role in the coming New World Order, and really some great uh, just side discussions and rabbit trails. I hope you'll take a chance to to listen to that one. Wednesday was World Events Update with Randy. Tuesday night was Prophecy Night. And also Tuesday, I had David Fiorazzo on talking about the scandal on of the cross. Uh, and uh, then, of course, we had episode four of Dr. Hickson Answers Your Questions earlier this week. We've got episode five coming uh, this coming Monday. Don't forget, tomorrow is our third installment of a limited series on Saturdays on preparedness. Uh, Randy will be with me to talk about how to prepare for an economic collapse. Uh, got some great guests coming next week. Nathan Jones will be back with us. We hope uh, my uh, technologist friend uh, Shane will be back with us. Um, but uh, in any event, uh, today we want to talk about uh, the parables of the kingdom. Before we do, I want to just take a moment to, to issue a clarion call about the amazing matchless grace of our God. I woke up this morning, I got up early and got a lot of stuff done. We're, we're still working on the new book and uh, made some great progress on that uh, this week and hope to iron out some more uh, today. Uh, but uh, as usual, I had a slew of emails and one of them was from someone who just absolutely cannot understand why I would teach that salvation is absolutely free. In their view, and they sent me two very long emails. Uh, they think you have to make a commitment, that you've got to hang on to your faith for the entire life. You've got to persevere in good works, uh, that, uh, you know, you just, you have to uh, keep your commitment. It's all about a commitment, right? And you, you got to sit down with God at the bargaining table. This is my paraphrase of what they're suggesting. And you've got to commit. And if you break that commitment at any point in the journey, then you're going to hell. And it just grieves me when I think about how, you know, burdened and, uh, oppressed, if you will, this viewpoint is to the heretical doctrine of works, you know, and and I've seen many times through the years when people finally get their hands around grace and really begin to embrace and understand God's matchless grace, it is life-changing. No longer are they having to live out their lives day by day wondering, am I going to persevere? Will I keep on believing? What if I depart from the faith? They can just rest in the promise of Christ who said, I give you eternal life and you shall never perish. And this person, you can tell, uh, they had a good attitude. I mean, they were not pejorative or ugly or mean. They just were absolutely flabbergasted that I would suggest you can get salvation for free and that you don't have to keep believing. Uh, I hope you do keep believing. I hope every believer perseveres in the faith until the end. I hope that our faith grows stronger 
throughout our life and that we we become more and more like Christ as we grow in our sanctification and our knowledge and, and grace and so forth. But I'm so thankful that our eternal destiny is not contingent upon my ability to hang on to God and my ability to, to keep trusting him. Uh, this person also, uh, you could tell they had been influenced by some Calvinist teaching, some pretty heavy Calvinist teaching, because they insisted that faith is a free gift, and that since God gives us that gift, he's going to make sure that we keep on having it. He wouldn't give us something and take it away. Well, the problem is, faith is not a gift. And this person cited uh, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, as is commonly the case, but that's just patently false. Uh, in Greek, the uh, pronouns and nouns must agree with each other. The passage in English says, for by grace you save through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And that pronoun, that, is neuter, and faith is feminine. And again, in Greek, nouns and pronouns must agree in gender and number. So it cannot possibly be the case that faith is the gift. The gift is our salvation. Faith is the means of receiving that gift. And so this person, like so many, has confused the gift with the means of obtaining the gift. And so I just pray if you're out there today and you're still uh, sort of entrapped in this works-based, commitment-based mindset, that you will just stay in the Word of God, let the grace of God really jump off the pages of Scripture. God loves you. Salvation is absolutely free. There's nothing you can do for it, nothing you have to do to keep it, nothing you have to do to prove it. Uh, you simply receive it by faith, and then uh, you become a child of God. And of course, as I told this person, uh, sin in the life of a believer is a tragedy. It's a terrible thing. It has uh, devastating effects. There are serious consequences for believers who persist in prolonged state of carnality. Um, but thankfully, our eternal destiny is not based upon our ability to avoid sin or to you know, avoid falling into serious sin. Uh, our eternal destiny is based upon the promise of Christ who said, I give you eternal life. So I hope if you're listening today, as we talk about the return of the Lord and what he had to say about his coming kingdom, I hope that if you're not a believer, that you will take a moment even right now to place your faith in Jesus Christ, the one who died and rose again for your sins. And uh, if you haven't done that already, if you have, well, then you're in for a treat today. We are so excited to have Lucas back. Lucas, thanks for being with us and uh, talking some more about the parables of the kingdom. Oh, you're very welcome. And JB, as you were talking, it reminded me, you know, one of the things prompting the kingdom parables in Matthew 13 was that the Pharisees, you know, the leaders of Israel rejected Jesus as king. And one of their problems was way back in in Matthew, in Matthew 5 in the uh, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking to the crowd, for I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So what he's saying is no matter how good your commitment is, it isn't good enough. Yeah, I mean, that's you know? exactly right. Great point. And, and, you know, what I wanted to say, but I didn't want to become, you know, too polemical and ugly. And, and by the way, I offered this person a free copy of my my book, uh, Getting the Gospel Wrong. They had copied and pasted, you know, dozens of verses in Scripture, all of which I deal with in that book. And so I just didn't have the time or inclination to sit here and type out a response and, you know, what those verses really mean. I just said, hey, I'd love to send you a free copy of Getting the Gospel uh, Wrong. And I address these passages in that book, and you can see how, how I believe they're to be interpreted. Well, uh, she rejected it. <laughs> she said, uh, no, thanks. I'll pass. So obviously this person has trouble with the concept of free things. They just, they don't want stuff for free. They want to feel like they've put something uh, in the game. But uh, anyway, I wanted to say to her, you know, listen, 
Uh, if you feel like you've got to, you know, uh, you know, God, God, she says, God gives you, give, gives you the faith and therefore he will make sure you persevere in the faith. Well, if it's all up to God, I have to say with all respect, God's not doing a very good job because I've met a few Christians. I've met one or two Christians in my life and guess what? They sin. And so if God, if it's all up to God, why don't we see any perfect Christians? I mean, if God's the one who makes sure that we obey and live righteously and keep persevering in the faith, why didn't he do it perfectly? Basically, what that viewpoint is saying is that God is so powerful that he's going to make sure that you at least do a little bit of good works and, and you know, that you don't commit any of the big sins, but, but God's okay if you commit a few little ones. And there's just this incipient pride in those who somehow can look in the mirror and think that their behavior validates their salvation, but then look across the room at someone else who's struggling and say their behavior proves they're not a Christian. That, that's a real problem. And it just shows they don't understand grace. Okay. I'm done ranting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so the, uh, so the mystery kingdom parables, and we, we kind of talked about this last time, you know, in uh, Matthew 12, uh, Jesus has been formally rejected by the nation of Israel as King. And so Jesus withdraws the offer of the kingdom. Uh, they can no longer accept it. Uh, it's the unpardonable sin. And we, if, you know, we talked about that last time and kind of explained what that was. And so from then on, Jesus's ministry changes. And one of the ways it changes is he starts speaking in parables. And we studied uh, one of the two or two of the reasons is that he's both revealing and concealing truth. And then he's also fulfilling prophecy. Uh, where even it was, I think it was Isaiah, or in Psalms, it says, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things kept secret from the foundation of the world. So that's what Jesus is doing. And so we, we talked about how much doctrine is in parables, the kingdom parables, but the kingdom parables always mean the kingdom, which has been defined for, for what, 40, gosh, what's the opposite, 40, 40 books previously. Uh, in the Bible. And so the kingdom is the kingdom of Israel. It's the earthly kingdom. And that's what Jesus means when he says the kingdom of heaven is like. Now, sometimes he's talking about people getting into the kingdom, that earthly kingdom, which is the case of what we're going to study today, the parable of the wheat and tares. Sometimes he's talking about conditions in the kingdom, uh, but it's all about the earthly millennial kingdom promised to Israel. It's uh, not about the church. The, the church has not been started yet. The church is only hinted at by Jesus. Um, and so these are not about the church. Now, that said, we can often find so many parallels of the meaning of these parables to the church. So we can still apply them, even though they are not directly about that. And that's going to be the case in the parable of the wheat and the tares, which we're going to get to in a second. Yeah, and that, that goes to meaning versus significance. There's one meaning of every passage of Scripture. What does it mean in its context? But it has a timeless truth, a significance that can be applied in uh, many, uh, you know, situations. And so we can take those timeless truths, you know, all scripture is profitable, the Bible says, even though it's not talking about the church. And in Matthew's account, I might just uh, clarify, in Matthew's gospel, unless I'm forgetting something, I don't even think he's really alluded to the church. He, the first reference to the church is in chapter 16. Right. Is it that where he tells Peter, I'm going to build my church in the future? So this is very much still in a holy Jewish context, as you said. Yeah. And so the, and we also said the mysteries of the kingdom. These are the details of the kingdom. It's not a mystery form of the kingdom. It's details unrevealed about the kingdom now revealed that Jesus is giving us. 
So with all that said, uh, we're just going to read, we're going to do the parable of the wheat and tares. Uh, and we're just going to read this. And then this is a really nice one because Jesus gives us essentially everything we need to know about what this parable means. Uh, and so we're going to talk about how we've kind of had a misconception of what that might be about. But anyway, this is Matthew uh, chapter 13, verse 24, if you want to read along. Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then are there tares? He said to them, An enemy has done this. The servant said to him, Do you want us to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. So this is something, a, and this is an agricultural thing that would happen. Uh, you wouldn't want to lose your whole crop just because there's tares. Um, and by the way, um, we're not sure exactly what plant the tares are, but in some way you could tell the difference between what the wheat and these plants are. Um, and actually, we're going to talk about that a little bit more in the parable of the mustard seed, which we should get today. But anyway, without me going on, Jesus says, because the, the disciples come and ask him in verse 36, explain to us the parable of the tares in the field. And he answered and said to them, he who sows the good seed is the son of man. Well, that was the same as the parable of the sower. Jesus, the son of man, is preaching the word. Now, we are benefits of it through his disciples, um, but he's the one doing it. Uh, verse 38, the field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. Uh, now, JB, what I know you know, what divides who the sons of the kingdom are versus the sons of the wicked one? Faith. Uh, it's faith. Yeah, yeah, it's faith. Now, it's not explicitly said here. Uh, why? Well, because, as you just said, it's a very Jewish context. Um if you want to know more about faith, read John. That's why John is there. You know, the word faith or believe is used, was it 99 times? Yeah, um, it's the gospel and, of belief. Yep. And so Matthew's uh, overall point is the king and the kingdom. Um, he's not necessarily telling his one of his main points is not necessarily telling you how to get saved, which is faith, although it's in there. Let's not disagree with that. But Matthew's point is more about the king and the kingdom in a Jewish context. So even though he might not explicitly spell that out here, we've got to compare scripture with scripture. And the way you become a son of the kingdom is to believe. And uh, we're going to actually, we're going to make that point very strongly here in a second. So let's move on. The enemy who sowed them, this is verse 39, is the devil, that's Satan. The harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are the angels. Now, what age are we talking about? Well, it has to be the end of the kingdom age because the church age hadn't started yet. And so the kingdom age ends with the 70th week of Daniel, which we're still waiting for. So that's what age we're talking about. The kingdom age ends at the end of the millennium, right? Or I'm, I'm this is, uh, I, I think this is about getting into the kingdom here. Right, right. And so the end of the, this age... To, to me would be the end of the Jewish or Israel, the age of the law. Correct. Yeah. I'm but glad you clarified that. Yeah. I, okay. I completely agree. This is talking about 
you know, the harvest for getting into the kingdom. Uh, and so the end of the age, it's not a reference to church. Now, we see other references where the age is talking about the church and the epistles. But here he's talking about the times of the Gentiles, basically, uh, while yes. during the time while uh, Israel and Jerusalem are under Gentile domination until the king comes back. And at that time, we will see, you know, this uh, metting out. So, yeah. So sorry if I was unclear of the, of that, just because, you know, when I when I think of this, I always have to refer it to the 70, 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel, uh, which we've been through 69 weeks. And now we're in an intercalation. You know, the church age is in between that. We're still waiting for that 70th week to complete. So, yeah, this age is the end of the age of the Gentiles getting into the kingdom. Uh, verse 40, therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Now, the, the lake of fire, uh, hell, Gehenna, furnace of fire, you know, they're all the same place. They're all the place where believer, unbelievers go when, when they die. Now, there's some, you know, you can make a little bit more of a distinction, but that's, you know, it's the end resting place of all unbelievers. But this phrase here, wailing and gnashing of teeth. Uh, now, if we just looked at that passage, that wouldn't be all that confusing because wailing and gnashing of teeth just means you're really, you know, intense regret. You're going to have like this physical response for how much you regret things. Um, I know in my life, sometimes you just you make a bad decision. And you just kick yourself over the regret of it or have some physical response. But there's another phrase that gets mixed up in here uh, that we that, that gets kind of confusing uh, and has been interpreted a couple different ways. So turn to Matthew 24. Uh, this is another place, another parable where this wailing of gnashing of teeth comes up. And it is the parable of the uh, faithful servant and evil servant. Um, and I'm just going to start at a verse 50, well, verse 50 of Matthew 24. The master of this, that servant, that's the wicked servant, will come on a day when he is not looking for him and in an hour when he is not aware of and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There will, there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. And, you know, this is a parable in the midst of the Olivet Discourse, which is all about the, the run-up to getting into the kingdom. Uh, and then in Matthew 25, verse 30, this is the parable of the talents. It says, and cast the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness. There will, there will be wailing and gnash, or weeping and gnashing of teeth. So now we've got this other phrase, outer darkness. Well, outer darkness is where you're going to go. Wailing, weeping and gnashing of teeth, that's what you're going to do when you get there. So if we revert this phrase all the way back to our uh, parable of the wheat and the tares, that's the furnace of fire. That's where outer darkness is, the furnace of fire. Now, the reason I'm going into this is because some people have taken this term outer darkness and kind of think it's almost like this purgatory kind of thing where people can go... Um, where they, you know, it's because this parable of the talents, you've got these, you know, these two guys, which we're not going to go into this today. But again, it's about getting into the kingdom or not into the kingdom. So outer darkness, that's the place where unbelievers go. 
Yeah, and and I want to underscore that a little bit, if I may, because yeah. that has really become a a false teaching that is very pervasive right now, especially among those who otherwise understand grace. And uh, but it just shows a, a real lack of discernment and proper hermeneutics. Um, I did a whole series on the outer darkness parables uh, one time. You can probably find it in the archives of our website if you subscribe to the premium content section. But um, the short answer is uh, it's it's two words. It basically refers to out in the dark or outside in the dark. And it's a metaphor. Uh, and in the Jewish context, the kingdom begins with a uh, you know a big uh, wedding banquet, a big kickoff party, I call it. And the Jews that didn't believe, that didn't have faith righteousness and instead were self-righteous, they're going to be left out of the kingdom, which, as you said, by extension means they end up in hell. But in the context, it's just talking about the kingdom. And they're going to be left looking in at this celebration that typically the wedding banquets would happen at night, if you think back to Jesus' parable of the virgins uh, with their lamps and so forth. Um, and so these people that are on these Jews that are unbelievers are going to be left outside in the dark looking in regretting that they don't get to be a part of that long-awaited messianic uh, wedding banquet. So uh, don't let anybody tell you that, you know, believers who, you know, don't live a good life, you know, some people will say, oh, they get to go to heaven eventually, but during the kingdom, they're kicked out and tormented and weeping and gnashing their teeth for a thousand years, like, like somehow... The blessed hope for them is the first time you see Jesus at the rapture, you're going to get a great big spanking or something. I mean, that's just not that. That's not at all what the Bible teaches, and and it completely, uh, you know, confuses. It. And Matthew's the only one that uses that phrase, by the way. And and in all of the outer darkness passages, it's clearly a Jewish context. Yeah, he uses it in the parable of the wedding feast, uh, where he's talking about a servant who wouldn't get in. In uh, Matthew twenty two thirteen, then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Uh, Luke uses that phrase, the, the weeping and gnashing of teeth, where he says very pointedly to the Pharisees, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and yourselves thrust out. They will come from the east and the west, from the north and the south, and sit down in the kingdom of God. Yeah, Matthew, and, Matthew's other place where he uses outer darkness is chapter eight, where he uses the I, same exact language. Yeah. yeah. Yep. And I was I was just going to read that if as if it wasn't clear, you know, in Matthew chapter eight, verse 10, talking about this centurion, assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. So there we've got Matthew clearly saying faith uh, is what's important here. Verse 11, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of God, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, the sons of the kingdom, he's talking about Israel that didn't believe. Right. I mean, he promised the kingdom of Israel. They've all got this brilliant chance to come in, but because not every, all of them are going to believe, some of those sons of the kingdom, Israel, will not get in. Yeah, and let's chase this rabbit for just a second. I know we're we're getting a little bit far afield, but you started out the program by talking or referring back after my comments to the Sermon on the Mount, and Matthew 8 comes right on the heels of the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew 5 through 7. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is telling these, these Jewish leaders uh, that 
the the righteousness that heaven demands is perfect righteousness. He said in Matthew 5, 48, you've got to be perfect like my heavenly father is perfect. And the problem with the what that they had is the same problem that this person that I was emailing with. And I'm sorry if I seem like I have a bug in my craw, but it really, it just <laughs> bothers me when people so emphatically and dogmatically defend a works-based, commitment-based gospel. But the Pharisees, they were very committed. I mean, they were very. dotting their eyes, crossing their T's. They were committed to the hilt. And they're in hell today because it's not about a commitment. It's about faith righteousness. And so that's why right after the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells this story, or Matthew includes the story, rather, of Jesus' encounter with the centurion, a Gentile, you know, from the Jewish perspective. I mean, they are dirty, rotten, filthy Gentiles. They don't keep the law. They don't do anything like these, you know, high and mighty Pharisees did. And he commends the centurion, as you pointed out, and says, I've not seen this kind of faith in Israel. And then he says, therefore, unbelieving Israel is going to be left out in the dark when the kingdom comes, and they're going to be weeping and gnashing their teeth. So I hope people will really prayerfully search the scriptures and break free of the bondage of this works-based, commitment-based thing. Commitment is important. As a believer, we ought to wake up every day and say, how can I serve my Lord? How can I follow Him? Uh, how can I put my hand to the plow and not turn back? As a believer, we're called to serve Him, but that's not the determining factor in whether we get into heaven. Otherwise, Jesus didn't have to die if we could just be committed enough to get into heaven. Mm -hmm. And this this point Jesus is making about this centurion, this is a point pretty common throughout the Bible that sometimes these Gentiles have more faith in Israel, whether it's uh, Ruth, um, the, the Nineveh, where Jonah went to, uh, which Jesus even used that as, as an example uh, over unbelieving Israel, uh, Rahab. I mean, there's just examples throughout the Bible, these Gentiles that otherwise have no reason to be righteous, believe in the true God, and they yeah. have that faith and they get in. Yeah. And, you know, to me, the quintessential illustration of what it really takes to get into heaven comes from the parable of the lost son in Luke 15, mm -hmm. because the older son thought he was worthy. You know, I've kept your commands, all this stuff. I've always done everything you've said. I'm basically perfect, so I should be worthy. But the younger son, which in the context represents, you know, believing Israel, he comes to the father and says, I am not worthy. And that phrase is really the key to salvation. You've got to come to the point where you realize you are a sinner, completely unworthy before a holy God. And the only way you can become worthy enough is by faith, and then Christ imputes his righteousness to you, and you become uh, born again. And so Jesus really drives that point home there because it's a longer story in, in, in the parable, the, we call it the prodigal son, um, and the, the, the Jewish audience listening would have been kind of on the edge of their seats, and they're, they just can't believe this you know Jew would do what this guy did, and take his inheritance, and sleep with the pigs, and and yet he's the one that gets the fatted calf killed for him because he recognized he was unworthy and he needed he needed faith. And so, yeah, fascinating, fascinating stuff. Yeah, and it's such a common theme. And to, to bring it back to the parable of the wheat and tares, you know, the last verse of Jesus' explanation, then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to let him hear. So which would you rather be in outer darkness where you're <laughs> gnashing your teeth, you're biting your tongue, you have all this regret, or would you rather shine forth like the sun? 
Mm. Uh, which would you rather be? And all it takes is faith to believe in Jesus as your savior. Mm. And, uh, you know, it's, um, you know, JB, I know you didn't say this, but sometimes this uh, free gift that we talk about is, you know, the easy believism. Uh, apparently, it's not so easy. No. Yeah. You know, I mean, the, the, apparently there are a lot of things in various people's lives that keep you from believing what is the easiest thing to do, which is just mm -hmm. place your faith in Christ. So, yeah, again, I mean, my, my book, Top 10 Reasons Some People Go to Hell and the One Reason No One Ever Has to, it deals with that very issue. Why is it that something so simple as faith uh, is so hard for some people? What keeps them from accepting the free gift? So, yeah, that phrase, easy believism, uh, sadly, a lot of people who disagree with grace and don't understand grace, they think grace is too easy because you got to bring something to the table. You got to bring something to the game. It's, you know, it's not just simply receiving. You got to sit down and barter with God like it's a bilateral contract and to simply believe is too easy. That's not at all what we mean. What we're saying is that belief is pretty simple intellectually to understand. I mean, you know what you believe. You either believe something or you don't. It's not that complicated. The problem is Satan has blinded men's hearts to the gospel for so long that it's hard for us to believe we can get something as valuable as eternal life for free. And so we, and we've been influenced by bad doctrine and bad teaching. And like this lady I was dialoguing with by email, they just can't let it go. They just can't, you've got to do something. And, um, you know, and like, I remember having a conversation one time uh, back in Illinois, actually with a neighbor long conversation. We even broke out my computer and I, Wendy and I showed some PowerPoint slides on the TV <laughs> at the living room. And I was just trying to help her understand grace. And she came so close to getting it. And you could just see her eyes opening and she's like, and she's a believer. She just was again in bondage to this works-based model. And at the very end, she goes, yeah, but don't you really have to know what you're getting into when you, when you uh. get saved? And I'm like, no, you have to know what you're getting out of. It's, you know, you're not committing to something. It's not a contract where you agree to do something for God and he lets you into heaven. So anyway, yeah, this is, uh, this is, you know, easy believism uh, is a false charge and you said it well. Apparently it's not all that easy because, you know, not because it's requires some kind of payment or commitment, but because people just are prone to earn what they get. They can't accept free stuff. Yeah. So, and that's a big part of this parable is believers will enter the kingdom. Unbelievers will not. There is another aspect to this though, is that believers and other unbelievers will be together until the end of the age. Mm. And, uh, and that's very, you know, um, depending on how you, uh, think different events in the tribulation will go. Um, I think Israel is going to have a lot of, could you say, defectors mm -hmm. uh, during the tribulation. And it's, you know, Jesus even says there's going to be a lot of antichrists that claim I am the Christ. And I think many of those could be Jewish. Yeah. And so, I mean, when you think about it, I mean, it's going to be a very confusing time. And these unbelievers are going to be telling people, hey, believe in me, not Jesus. The guy that is going to come back in seven years. I mean, they're not going to put it like that, but you know, that idea. Um, and so they're going to be together and those the people at that time will have to sift through that. And it's going to be hard. That's why Jesus starts off the sermon, uh, the Olivet Discourse with do not be deceived. <laughs> yeah. Repeatedly, he says that I just wrote about mm -hmm. that in my uh, book last night that I'm working on, which I'm really excited about, uh, about this uh, new book. But anyway, yeah, it, it, it reminds me of 
you know, what Paul says, and I think this is really what Jesus is trying to explain to the first century Jewish audience about the nature of the makeup in, in, in the lead up to the kingdom. And mm -hmm. Paul said, remember in Romans 9 through 11, somewhere in there, he said, not all Israel is Israel, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. in, in other words, Jesus is saying here, look, just because you're a Jew doesn't mean you're not going to get left out in the dark. You know, mm -hmm. you may you may have some weeping and gnashing of teeth if you don't uh, have the righteousness of God. Verse 43, which you read, the righteousness will shine in the sun of the kingdom. It's all about righteousness. Do you have self-righteousness mm -hmm. or do you have faith righteousness, imputed righteousness that you get as a free gift by trusting in Christ? And so he's trying to, I think, prepare them that, look, some of you listening to my voice uh, you're, there's two camps, as you said, you know, and faith makes a difference. And some of you are not in the right camp. Is that, is that a yep. good way to say it? That's a very good way to say it. And, you know, again, we've talked, this is about the kingdom, but by way of application, is it really any different for us in the church age? Mm -hmm. Now we're going to be called out of this age in the rapture where we're going to leave um, and the unbelievers are going to stay now at the end of the tribulation, that's going to be reversed. The believers will stay on earth. The unbelievers will go away, but we're dealing with, you know, all kinds of apostasy and deception within the church, not just outside of the church. So what a lesson for us too. We're dealing with the same climate, even though this isn't specifically about us. Yeah. And, and some people sadly will point to this passage as a justification for the hasty conclusion that there's a bunch of, you know, false professors, they call them, in the church. Oh. Well, look, there's no question that there's a lot of people in the church that aren't believers, but what yeah. makes them unsaved is not their behavior. It's that they've never had faith righteousness. They've never trusted Christ. And so we really have to resist the urge to, you know, hastily look at other people and based on their behavior, say, oh, he's not a Christian or she's not a Christian. So yeah, you're right. In this present age, it's becoming more and more apparent that there are churches filled with people that are not Christians. You would agree with that, right? Oh, yeah. 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 And, and another but, but, principle too, real quick, that I think you can extend, generally speaking, not only to the church age, but even in the coming kingdom. I mean, this is talking about entrance into the kingdom when Christ comes back at the end of the age, as we talked about. But now fast forward into the millennial time. Uh, eventually, after people start having babies, there will be unbelievers even in the kingdom and yeah. it's not until the final end of the millennium and god you know creates a new heavens and a new earth and sinless perfection that we will finally be in a world where there's only wheat and no tares mm -hmm. and so just like leading up to the the uh end of the tribulation when jesus comes back you're going to have wheat and tares leading up to, to at the point the rapture happens we're going to have wheat and tares mm -hmm. And we'd need to deal with that. And so what, what a good application, again, even though it isn't directly about us. Um, and the, the other parable we're going to get to is the parable of the mustard seed. Now, this one's so simple. And I will tell you, JB, when I was writing this book, man, I did hours and hours of research trying to address the things that pop up in this parable. And it's so simple. I mean, it would take me 30 seconds to explain this parable, but we're going to spend a lot more than that <laughs> to address yeah. what else goes on. And I, I apologize. I forgot. I meant to mention on the at the outset uh, of our podcast that obviously you've written several books. We've talked in the past about the one on um, 
the uh, signs. Um, but this is, this one is a book that our church is actually using right now for our Wednesday night Bible study, and it's called Lamp on a Lampstand, right? Yes. And uh, it's all the, about the parables of Jesus, and I highly recommend it. You can get it at Amazon.com. Uh, if you're in the Denver metro area, come out to Plum Creek Chapel on Wednesday nights at 6 o'clock. We'll get you a copy. Uh, but yeah, so thanks for reminding me about that. Yeah, and I've got it in my hand because I've got a. It's nice when you write things down, you can reference it when you forget, right? So yes, I, I hate it out. when people quote me against myself. You know, it's happening more and more the older I get. This is my 12th book. And uh, by the way, I have your book too, but it's covered in stuff because I've got so many articles that I'm trying to research and cite in my book that my when I'm writing, my desk is a mess. So, but anyway, well, and, lamp on a lampstand. And, and, you know, I, I reread my stuff to prepare. And, boy, it's really humbling, humbling when you find all the spelling errors in there. And thank you that for those that have out there that have told me about my errors. I know they are there. Yeah. I just it costs me money to upload a new manuscript. So I'm trying to catch at least most of them before I do that. So, yeah, well, good luck I, with I that. It. I mean, I tell you, uh, you know, we we still find the occasional typo. Even the best editors in the world will miss some stuff. I remember mm -hmm. J. Dwight Pentecost, the late J. Dwight Pentecost. I had him over 30 years ago at Dallas Seminary and his book, Things to Come, is kind of the 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 quintessential book on eschatology. In fact, my book, What Lies Ahead, we sort of patterned it uh, organizationally wise after that book. But he would every semester, and he'd been using that book by that time. It had already been out twenty years. So mm -hmm. every semester, he would tell students, "Look, if you find a typo, let me know because every semester we find one we hadn't caught mm -hmm. before." And this was after twenty years. So I'm, my most embarrassing typo, by the way, was speaking of what lies ahead, was in my book, What Lies Ahead, where I was talking about the bowl judgments. And at one point, I uh, misspelled bowl. And because it, not, none of the editors caught it and the spell checker didn't catch it, because I spelled it B-O-W-E-L. So it was the bowel judgments, which, of course, you know, is something entirely different from eschatology. Yeah. I think it has something to do with Taco Bell. Taco course, Bell. I was yeah. going to say yeah. that, too. So, uh, <laughs> anyway, yeah, no worries. Uh, but, yeah, it's it's uh, a great book, Parable uh, Lamp on a Lampstand. So I hope folks right. get it. Sorry, folks, a little television stage talk there. But uh, anyway, <laughs> the uh, Parable of the Mustard Seed, that's in Matthew 13. 31. Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all the seeds. But when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. So this parable, we, we mentioned it last week. It's so simple. All it means is the parable or the kingdom's going to start small and it's going to grow very big. A mustard seed is very small and it grows into a large plant. Therefore, the kingdom's going to start small and grow large. And we talked about how, you know, there could be very few people that come into the kingdom um, by way of an And I'm not saying this is going to be the way it is. By way of analogy, you know, there were only eight people that that's got saved on the ark. And now we have the population we do. And so, again, I'm not saying it's going to be only eight. I'm just saying God's not afraid to use a very small number to then produce very big. Israel was started, you know, with one guy and then one son and then one son and then 12. <laughs> yeah. Know, so that, yeah, I think I, I think I counted that right. If I put an extra son in there, I'm sorry, but <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, the remnant principle is something that comes up again and again in scripture where most often throughout human history, God moves 
in the realm of the remnant, right? Not mm -hmm. in the majority. And I think the reason Jesus is telling this parable as new information about the kingdom is that the Jews really ever since um, they got, you know, into the promised land have, like all of us, I'm not picking on the nation of Israel, they're God's chosen nation, but they they tend to have this sense that it's all about them, that they're, they're the center of the universe. And, and one day they will be when the King of Kings and Lord of Lords takes the throne and rules from the millennial temple, as Ezekiel describes in 40 to 48. But they just had this mistaken notion that at some point, this great military ruler was going to come and conquer the world, throw off the shackles of all the enemies of Israel that have led them in bondage for so many generations, and they were going to rule the world. And they did not understand the general principle that's repeated again and again in Scripture that, uh, you know, uh, humility comes before honor, that suffering comes before exaltation, that the cross comes before the crown, and so on and so forth. So I think Jesus is reminding them that, because if you if you look at his teaching as a whole in in the Gospels, he's basically trying to warn them that it's going to get worse before it gets better. Mm -hmm. So there's some things that have to happen, namely the 70th week of Daniel. Well, of course, you know, Calvary first yeah. and foremost, but I mean, from a Jewish historical perspective, the wrath of God, the wrath of Satan, the whole reign of the antichrist, all that's going to be horrific. So by the time the kingdom finally arrives, when the King comes back, it's going to look somewhat humble. In, in a way. And in fact, the temple will have been destroyed. They'll have to rebuild the temple according to Ezekiel's specs. And uh, so I think that's kind of what's underlying his reminder that be patient over the next thousand years, this kingdom is going to blossom into something like you've never seen before. Yeah. And, and to tag along with the point you made where Israel kind of thought they were really important. We, as the church, we do the same thing. Mm -hmm. I actually just read a, uh, it was a review or a, uh, you know, kind of a synopsis of a book by an author most people would know. And it was about the church and your purpose and things like that. And one of the comments was the church is the most important organism God ever created. Wow. <laughs> and I kind of, and I kind of wanted to say, you know, if you hold up your Bible and put your finger in Genesis 12 and then put it in Acts 2, you'll notice most of your Bible is about Israel, not the church. <laughs> Great point. And, 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 and then you could actually add the parts of Revelation too. you know, you can, can kind of oh, do yeah. that. But, you know, yeah. the, the point is that Israel is extremely important, but we as the church go, well, you know, they killed Jesus. So the church is obviously more important. We kind of have this attitude. Yeah. And the church is going to fail. Got, read Timothy chapter 3. Um, you know, and what you said, the remnant, when I say the church is going to fail, I mean, it's going to, I, I kind of have this idea where the church is going to be a remnant by the time of the rapture. I per, personally, I can't prove this from scripture. I think there's going to be a lot of places in the world where when the rapture happens, they won't know. Yeah. I, um, I, I couldn't have said it better myself. I, I completely agree with you. I think the remnant mm -hmm. principle is clearly bearing itself out in, uh, in the present age, but you're right. The, the the church at large today is very ecclesiocentric. You know, we mm -hmm. we we think it's all about us. And by the way, and I want to be careful how I say this because I don't want to paint with too broad of a brush, but there is a high dose of anti-Semitism that emanates from amillennialists and covenant theologians and, and reform, even some reformed theologians. Now, I'm not saying everyone who holds to covenant theology is an anti-Semite, but I'm saying, you right. know, 
more often than not, when I come across in my research on the Luciferian conspiracy, people who think Israel and the so-called Zionists are the problem, and they're the real tip of the spear cause, trying to take over the world, when I delve a little further into their theology, I find out they're not dispensationalist. You know, they just believe in the coming of Christ and they think that this world is all in, in you know, a problem because of these, uh, the Jews. So, you know, uh, but, but back to the church. Yeah, absolutely. Because of so much bad teaching, a lot of people think the church has replaced Israel. We're the apple of God's eye. We're the new Israel, but absolutely not. God has a future for his chosen nation, Israel, and these parables of the kingdom prove that. Yeah. Yeah, and to kind of went off on a tangent there, and that's fine because you get a lot more than what I wrote. So, but uh, one of, one of the big things about this parable is people want to question the details. Now we said last time, sometimes the details are important, sometimes they're not. I mean, we just did the wheat and the tares where Jesus defined what all the details are, but in this parable he doesn't do that, which means the details are there to serve the the thing he's trying to get you to think about or the meaning of the parable. And the meaning of the parable is kingdom is small to big. So one thing people do is they question what kind of mustard plant it is. And, and I'm just telling you, Jesus is not telling this parable as a botanist. Right. Uh, now, now Jesus created all the plants. So clearly he knew what everything was, but he's not making this, you know, uh, botanist, you know, genus species, uh, et cetera, you know, comment. He's just saying, this mustard plant has a small seed and it grows into a plant that's very large. And his audience would have understood that. Um, some people also, they kind of get into this, you know, well, the mustard seed isn't the smallest seed. Well, notice that Jesus said that the, the sower sowed the seed. The mustard seed was the smallest seed that was sown in Israel. So even though worldwide the mustard seed is not the smallest, Jesus was perfectly accurate in what he was saying, and his audience would have knew it. Yeah. Um, and this is the third time I'm going to say it. Jesus wouldn't have used this analogy if his audience wouldn't have understood it. So if anybody in his audience could have said, well, I have a smaller seed, that then Jesus wouldn't have said it. Right. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And, and what you just did is a, a great reminder of, the key, the number one point in proper hermeneutics, which is observation. And a lot of the criticisms that skeptics give of various passages, particularly in the Gospels, upon further examination, they're not contradictory. They're not wrong, scientifically or otherwise. And Jesus didn't say that the mustard seed is the smallest seed ever known to mankind ever present on the earth. He's talking about an agricultural analogy, and it's the smallest seed that a person took and sowed in his field. And that was absolutely spot on. By the way, the banner that we used last time and that we are using again this time to uh, promote this podcast on our uh, homepage uh, shows a person holding a mustard seed. Uh, mm -hmm. We chose that as the uh, the graphic. And uh, of course, today's podcast is Jesus' Enigmatic Parables of the Kingdom Continued. And we will you know, continue them further, uh, I'm sure, in the weeks to come here. Mm -hmm. But anyway, I just thought I'd point out, if you want to see what a mustard seed looks like, uh, you can go to notbyworks.org and look on the highlight carousel where the first banner, at least until tomorrow, when our next podcast uh, bumps it into the second position, uh, you'll see what that mustard seed looks like. Yeah. And, and speaking of that same thing, 
uh, botanists, people that have studied this, they can't agree which seed it is or which mustard species it is. Um, I'll point this out that God's not required to preserve the exact species of mustard plant that Jesus was talking about. The example is in Job, God describes two animals named Behemoth and Leviathan. Now, we don't know, we don't see those animals that he's describing today. Does that mean the Bible is inaccurate? Does that mean the Bible is wrong? Does it mean telling a lie? No, it just means those animals went extinct. So with this seed, people cultivate seeds and they preserve, you know, they, they uh, what, what would they, uh, I can't think of the word. They grow seeds in a way for certain qualities. And so the, the exact type of seed that Jesus is talking about, we might not see it exactly like it or our agricultural practices are different, that it grows different. It doesn't destroy the validity of anything Jesus says, even though we can't know maybe the exact mustard seed he's talking about. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, something else they do is is in it says it, uh, the then the herbs, and then when it's grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree. People, sometimes they'll key in on that and they'll go, well, herbs are not trees. And that's true. Herbs are not trees. And so they'll say, well, obviously this must be about the kingdom morphing into something evil. And then they, <laughs> and then they kind of do the, well, it must be about the church because the church is going to be corrupted, apostasy. The point is that it's a small seed and it becomes a plant that's as big as a tree. <laughs> and that's the point. Yeah. Jesus isn't saying an herb morphs into a tree. That's not, he's not pointing that out. He's just saying this was a common thing that people saw and they would have known. Yep. Same with the detail of the birds in the air. Now, you can find places in scripture where birds of the air indicates evil coming. And so they'll say, well, that must be evil in the kingdom coming to rest on the morphed kingdom that started. No, the point is the tree is so big that birds can come and sit in it. Yeah. That's yeah. the point. Mm -hmm. You, I'm so glad you said this because there's a lot of allegory that that rises from this short little two-verse parable in scripture and i've seen it even some dispensational scholars uh sadly you know mishandle this particular passage but we we love to come up with fantastical ideas that are creative that originate in our mind and assume that's what the verse is talking about that's a big mistake when it comes to parables, especially uh, parables of the kingdom. We want to let the text speak for itself. Don't become obsessed with the details, unless, of course, the text identifies the details for right. us, as you mentioned with uh, some of the other parables. So, yeah, great point. Well said. Yep. And, and you know, it, it goes along with that point. We only have now the parables repeated in other gospels, but we only have two verses. You know, we're building quite a lot of doctrine on two verses in a parable where he says the kingdom of heaven is like, so he's not even directly describing, you know, this specific thing about, no, he's saying the kingdom is like this picture. Here's why it's like the picture. That's all he's saying. Yeah. And so we can't take it too far. Yeah. It's a, uh, you know, it's a, a, a figure of speech called a simile, which is a comparison using a like uh, or as, and, you know, I think, um, we, we, of course, we focused on what is the obvious point, which is that the kingdom is going to start small and grow big. But I wonder if some of the believing Jews sitting under the sound of his voice at that time, namely the disciples, um, might have taken some encouragement from the fact that, you know what, 
right now we're we're kind of the minority and of course it was you know going to get worse the closer they got to the cross uh but you know someday everybody's going to see this kingdom and we're going to be part of something pretty big there's a there's an inherent encouragement and optimism here that basically says hang on a better day is coming Mm-hmm. Yeah, and one of the parables, we'll probably get to it next week, the parable of the growing seed, it's about how God is responsible for growth. Mm. And so there's now, if you want to relate this to the church age, we don't have a promise that the church is going to start small and then grow very big. But how many countless times have we seen a ministry or a church or a missionary, whatever it is, that one little small body become something that has great influence in the church. Mm -hmm. Now, it doesn't always stay that way. You know, corruption can enter, it can fracture, you know, but God can grow things that are very, very small into something very big. And like you said, there's a lot of encouragement in that. Yeah, it is. And also, you know, we tend to think in terms of uh, size being numbers and what you can see. Mm -hmm. Um, I think... uh, we may get to heaven someday and find out that a lot of obscure ministries and gospel preaching pastors who who clearly taught the gospel and clearly articulated the gospel that they we may see when we get to heaven that there's a huge mustard tree if you will that has grown <laughs> yeah. that we didn't even know about that mm-hmm. the influence of of consistently faithfully proclaiming the word of god uh can can really have quite an impact um and, you know, we think about that often at at Not By Works. You know, we've been around since 99 in some form or fashion. Uh, 2013 is when we finally incorporated and uh, really, you know, kind of got got going strong. And, uh, and then over the last 10 years, the Lord's just continually uh, increased our stewardship as we've tried our best to remain faithful. Uh, and but, you know, it, we're not a big ministry. We're not. And we have been blessed to partner with and work with and speak at large ministries. And I sometimes in my flesh, I look at those and I think, you know, I wonder if we'll get like this or what if we had this staff or what if we had this or if we had that. But you know what? The Lord always has a way of humbling me and bringing me back to, you know what? Just be faithful. Be faithful with what I've entrusted to you. Leave the results up to me. And, uh, you know, we get uh, unfortunately, in this age of technology with podcast and video casting and all that stuff, you know, people have come, especially from the larger ministries, to expect high quality, you know, production quality type stuff. And of course, you know, we're we not able to do that. We don't have a huge studio and a huge staff and a huge budget. And so I remember we recently we've had some troubles with our audio at the church. We finally fixed it. But someone posted a comment on a video. Um, this is terrible. And how come no other videos have this problem? And you need to fix this. And we just deleted the comment. We didn't respond, but I'm thinking, <laughs> well, you know, we could, you know, we could sell out. We could, you know, uh, you know, and we've had opportunities to do advertising with that we've rejected because the product was not something that we wanted to support. Um, but, you know, not, not that every big ministry is sold out, not at all. Many are just reaping the blessings of the Lord because they're being faithful to what he's entrusted to them. But, you know, to us, we just ask for grace, you know, from some of our listeners and our audience to be patient with us. Uh, we understand that excellence is important and we strive for that. But for us, it's more about the content than it is uh, the style. It's more about the substance than the style. And, uh, you know, so we'll see where the Lord leads. God is good. But yeah, that's a great reminder of an application. Again, as you mm-hmm. said, not the meaning, but an application of that passage. 
Yeah, and I and I remember, and I, and I can conclude with this. I remember when it was pointed out that nowhere in the Bible does it mention a big church or a little church. <laughs> yeah, Paul never. Paul, for, for I know there were other epistle writers, but Paul never says, "Oh, well, you know, this big church in Corinth." Right. Yeah. Or, and he never says anything like that. So ne never, never be swayed by whether it's quote big or small based on numbers. That doesn't no. matter to God. No, it really doesn't. And I appreciate you saying that. We had we get visitors every week, both on Tuesdays and Sundays from all across the country. I had a guy come uh, this past uh, Tuesday from Oregon. He's traveling across the country and he listens to us out there. And he said, hey, I made a point to have my schedule so that I would be here on a Tuesday night. And then I, I struck up a conversation with him. We ended up going to lunch on Thursday as he headed out of town. Super guy. Um, really appreciate his sharing and his journey. But uh, we, inevitably, people come and we had this happen Sunday. A lady came and she was just shocked that this wasn't this massive, big church building. You know, mm. Plum Creek Chapel is a fairly small church by, you know, evangelical standards. You know, we have 120 people or so on a Sunday, 100 to 120, maybe more. It depends on the Sunday. Um, and, and and praise God for that. We, we're not yeah. necessarily you know, trying to grow in numbers. We just want to be faithful to preach the word and whoever comes, comes. And, you know, some people like big churches with all of the programs and the music and so forth. Uh, you know, we've got a couple of music leaders that take turns at our 830 and 10 o'clock service, and they stand up there with a keyboard or a guitar and they sing great hymns of the faith. And um, a lot of people love that. But, uh, you know, um, we, we, we're just, we know we could invest a ton of money in billboards and advertising and radio, and we could blossom up overnight. You know, um, mm -hmm. God has given exposure to Plum Creek Chapel through Not By Works Ministries. Um, but we don't want to do that. We don't want to get ahead of the Lord. We want to just stay faithful and see where the Lord leads. But uh, yeah, so uh, parables of the kingdom are all about new information about the kingdom. And uh, summarize what we learned about the kingdom real quick before we close in the parable of the tares and the mustard seed. Yeah, so the parable of the wheat and tares. Uh, the point is that... Uh, the unbelievers and believers are going to be together until the end of the age, leading up until the kingdom. Believers are going to enter, unbelievers will not. And then the parable of the mustard seed is that the kingdom is going to start out small and it's going to grow very, very, very big. Amen. And that's, Thank, and that's the point. <laughs> Thank you so much, Lucas. What a blessing. And I can't wait to have you on to continue uh, talking about these parables of the kingdom. We'll uh, pick a date here offline, uh, hopefully the next week or uh, no more than two weeks from now. Uh, and uh, to our listeners, again, thanks for joining in. I, I, I hope you were encouraged. I know I was at the truth that we talked about today from God's word. As always, uh, check out our website, notbyworks.org, notbyworks.org. That's where you can uh, you know, send us an email. You can find all kinds of free resources. You can also link up to our store where we have books and streaming video and things like that. Um, we've got one more podcast this week, and that's tomorrow morning with uh, Randy. We'll be talking about how to prepare for an economic collapse. So I hope that you will check that out. Don't forget to pick up Lucas's book, Lucas Doremus, uh, The Lamp on a Lampstand. You can get it at amazon.com. And uh, or a lamp on a lamp stand, I think it's called, right? Yep. And uh, <clears throat> and then uh, Sunday will be I'll be in the pulpit at Plum Creek, continuing our look 
at uh, the book of Nehemiah. I'm going to be talking about what it's like to live in the land of the easily influenced and how to avoid being so easily swayed and manipulated and misled uh, and how to have discernment. We're going to talk about five keys to discernment. So I hope you can look forward <laughs> to that. That's live stream. We live stream the second service, uh, and that's at uh, about 10 o'clock or so, 10, 15. So anyway, thanks everyone. God bless. Have a great rest of the day.